Coming up on Stu Does America, I'm really excited for tonight's show. I mean, sure, the entire country's in chaos, and we'll talk about all that, but also be talking to the brilliant Bjorn Lomborg about his new book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. You can get all our shows for free, by the way, anytime. Just go to YouTube and search for Stu. I'll be the first one there. When you get there, if you're already on YouTube, it's great. Just click like, do it right now before you forget or I say something that pisses you off. Help us defeat the YouTube algorithm robots. Now, uh, if you start to get invitations from people who like wanna hang out and stuff and see you, oh gosh, or are you hoping to never see them again? Well, you need then our, right here, sorry, can't make it, self-quarantined t-shirt. It's beautiful. Find these and so much more at Stew Dust Merch. It'll get you out of any annoying function. Let everyone know that you roll with the Conserva Nerds. And today's actually a good day for the Conserva Nerds. Conserva Nerds unite! Today we've got graphs, we've got numbers. Let's get to it before global warming kills us all. Stew Does America. The last few months have been a lesson in priorities, haven't they? Maybe family time, more important than work time. Maybe accurate information is more important than politics. Maybe alcohol is more important than everything. And maybe, just maybe, preparing for the threat of a global pandemic is more important than global warming. Hmm, weird. Just think of all the scary headlines you've seen about global warming. It's all the horror, all the hype, all the terrified school children with their scowls and their pigtails. And all that time, hundreds of billions of dollars spent just by the U.S. government alone, not including the private sector or international organizations or any of the other countries on Earth. All to fight a slow-moving, distant threat, while an imminent, much more dangerous threat was right in front of our faces. Trillions of dollars worldwide spent on climate change. Well, we didn't have enough masks for our first responders. Makes a lot of sense. We have a database that searches old cable news shows. It's not entirely complete, but it gives a good idea of the media's priorities. For the entire decade of the 2010s, a discussion of pandemic happened on CNN 330 times and on MSNBC 233 times. Climate change in that same period? 6,440 times on CNN and 8,022 times on MSNBC. That's a total of 14,462 for climate change and 563 for pandemic or about a 26 to 1 ratio. Which one do you think we should have been focusing on? Politics and the media get in the way of our COVID discussions here in the U.S., but I don't think the governments of Peru and India are reporting COVID deaths to screw with Donald Trump's election. Worldwide, there have been officially about 675,000 deaths from this coronavirus, almost all of them this year, of course. MIT released a study that says we've only actually recorded about half the real number, which makes sense because, honestly, I doubt we're getting the full accounting of coronavirus fatalities from places like North Korea, the Central African Republic, and Turkmenistan, where, by the way, they still have zero total cases. Thank you very much. But if you bring up any of this, of course, you're a climate denier. We're not denying the climate. We're acknowledging priorities. We have a limited amount of money to spend, and we should try, to, I don't know, maybe not to set it on fire to control the temperature a century into the future. 
One of the clearest voices on the trade-offs of these supposed solutions for climate change is Bjorn Lomborg. He's a well-known environmentalist uh, who wrote a book noting that, I don't know, some of the claims environmentalists were making didn't exactly add up. The book was called The Skeptical Environmentalist. It sold a lot of copies, but it didn't exactly endear him to the Sierra Club crew. But his writing has always been about how we can use our resources to actually help people instead of feel-good virtue signaling. He's back with a new book, and it's a great one, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. It's the sort of thing you're going to want to refer back to over and over again. It's just packed with stuff that the media will not tell you about the science and costs of climate change. We talk to Bjorn Lomborg next. Have you tried intermittent fasting yet? It sounds like a trendy thing, something that I don't that doesn't sound like me. Well, you know what? I kind of like it. Uh, why? Because there there's a typical approach that everyone tells you to do, which is I'm going to cut 14 calories off of each meal for the next 100 years. And I will I will I will lose one pound per month. All right, look, I don't know if you're that consistent of a person, you probably don't need to lose weight in the first place. Right. I like uh, intermittent fasting because it kind of gives you an, it's an all or nothing thing. Right. You're in the middle of it. You're going for uh, for uh, to, to lose some weight. And you have uh, the Fast Blast smoothie right there with you by your side. Why? Well, the Fast Blast smoothie is uniquely formulated for intermittent fasting. It gives you great energy, fewer cravings. And the best part, of course, is that it's very simple and it tastes great. You don't have to mix it up. There's no shakes to make. You don't have to do all sorts of stuff. Just combine it with lots of liquids. Drink one you know, every couple of hours, and it'll keep you satisfied. Uh, we always tell you to do your own homework. So learn more about intermittent fasting at fastblast.com. If you're thinking, I don't know how to do that. I don't know anything about it. They will walk you through every little piece of this. They're great. They know this stuff better than anybody. Uh, by the way, of course, fastblast.com slash blaze. The slash blaze part is important because that's how they know you like this stupid show. So get started today with Fast Blast. For a healthier and smaller you, it's fastblast.com slash blaze. I'm joined now by Bjorn Lomborg. And I got to tell you, uh, whenever I see Bjorn's name, uh, written when he's in the author's section of anything, I always pick it up and read it right away because he's one of the most important voices out there and everything he writes is interesting. I love it. His new book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, thanks so much for coming on the program. Stu, it's great to be here. Uh, I, I want to dive into the meat of the book, um, but let me start here. It's been interesting doing this show in the middle of a global pandemic. Books take a long time to write. And no one predicted to release their book in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, so how do you I mean, when you look at this with this new perspective of the crazy world we're in, what can you take from the book that applies to today? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, people have more time, so they actually like to read more books. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, the, the pandemic has taught us, I think, two very important things. One is there's a real cost to over-worrying about global warming. So if you look at what the WHO did, over the last 10 years, they have more and more focused towards saying global warming is the biggest single issue, even for health, which is by pretty much all standards, just simply silly. Mm. But it, of course, also means that when a, an actual pandemic hits, you're less likely to be prepared for it. I think the second thing that we can take away from the pandemic is that it clearly has huge impacts. It both kills lots and lots of people, and it has a huge cost, especially to our economy. We have to get this balance right. 
And we've struggled to have that conversation. And very often people just say you shouldn't have it. But clearly there's a cost to tackling uh, corona and there's a cost to not tackling corona. We need to weigh those two up against each other. And once we're done with corona, I think we'll be looking back at this and having one of those moments where we realize that's the same conversation we need on climate. Big problem, but the solutions also have big, big costs. Let's make sure that we actually balance the two. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, really, it's really interesting to look at this because prioritization is really what you're talking about here. And if you don't prioritize the right things, and you're looking at global warming and you go through all of, all of the details uh, in the book, but you know, pandemic response is something that obviously can hit you and turn your entire world upside down overnight with no warning. That's not the type of problem that global warming is. No, global warming is a slow, steady problem that we'll have to fix over the next, say, 80 years or so. Uh, and, and so I'm often astounded by how people will tell you this as if it hits tomorrow. Uh, you know, one, one great headline from climate change ran in Washington Post, many papers across the country and really around the world uh, last year told us 187 million people are going to have to move because of global warming or going to be flooded. And some even said are going to drown because sea levels will rise. Now, it's absolutely true. Global warming will make sea levels rise. But they assume that nobody will do anything the next 80 years. So, you know, you'll sit and the waves will start lapping up over your knees and then your hips and eventually you drown. no. Humans actually take action. And the same paper that said 187 million people will flood if we don't do anything also said if we do anything reasonable, we will see 305,000 people having to move by the end of the century. So 600 times less. And what that tells you is when you hear these very scary and alarmist stories on climate change, don't necessarily believe them. It's not that they're untrue, but it's that they leave out very crucial information that actually helps you make real world decisions. This is what you do an amazing job with in this book, which is essentially, I feel, feel like it's the origin story of all these claims you've heard. You, like like a, you know, a superhero origin story where you go back and look at how did this claim get to you? How did the claim of 187 million people get to me? And you break it down piece by piece and you do it in a way of, of you're not skeptical of their science at all. You're saying this is what the paper actually says. And it's such an effective way to look at this. Another one you look at in this same section is the idea that in 12 years, we are going to, uh, the world's over. We only have 12 years to save the planet. We've heard everyone, every American politician has uh, said this, that it is on the left over and over again. What's the origin story of it? So this came from the Paris Climate Agreement, which we all entered into in 2015. Uh, there, a lot of ambitious politicians realized they, they can't actually promise very much because that's really costly and really hard. So instead, they make this sort of flourish general promise of saying, we're going to keep temperatures from rising above 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. That sounds like a very funny number, and that's because it's a nice number in centigrade. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, they just made this nice promise Nobody actually believes you can do it. But what they then said is, ah, we promised this. How do we, how do we actually do that? So they asked the UN climate panel after they'd promised to say, could you please tell us how we can reach this almost unreachable target? And not surprisingly, the UN climate panel then came back and said, look, if you really want to reach this very, very impossible target, you have to do almost everything impossible. You have to change your entire economy in what was then 12 years, 
now by 2030. So that's how the 12 years arose. And now, of course, it's 10 years. If you want to do something almost impossible, you have to do almost impossible political stuff. But they weren't actually telling you that you should do that. <laughs> actually, it turns out to be an incredibly bad idea. It's a little bit like asking you know, NASA. So, you know, what would it take for everyone on, in America to go to the moon? Well, they probably say, well, technically we can do this, but you'd have to divert all resources to NASA for the next 12 years. And it's going to be phenomenally costly and you won't have food and all that other stuff. But then you can do it. doesn't mean they're saying you should do it. Right. So to be clear, the U.N. IPCC never said we need to keep uh, uh, the temperature at one point five degrees centigrade. It's just a, a Paris Accord number. And they retrofitted some bizarre scenario to try to hit it. That's an I mean, that's not been covered in the media at all. No. And that's, of course, because a lot of people of goodwill. So look, I've debated a lot of these people. They want to do good. Mm -hmm. They believe that the way to help the future of the planet is to dramatically cut temperatures. And there is some good to be done with that. But what they forget, of course, is that their real cost to changing the engine of growth. Remember, what has made us rich over the last 200 years is basically the immense access to energy, most of it fossil fuels. Remember 200 years ago, most of us were incredibly renewable because we didn't have anything else. We used our own muscles. We had horses and other draft animals and a little bit of, of water mills that would actually uh, churn our, our, our wheat. That was about it. Fossil fuels made it possible for us to go from, you know, uh, in late 1800s, 70, sorry, 94% of all energy in U.S. Uh, industry came from humans. Today, that is about 7%. Mm. Because, of course, we can now actually use, you know, big tractors and, and uh, heavy movers and all these things that actually make us rich. So telling people now you can't do that anymore is actually going to have a real cost. And of course, telling it to the poor people of the world who are trying to get on the first route of this, who actually want to get industrialized, is just simply terrible. They would like to get out of poverty first. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Much more crucial. You know, your work over the years has really had me. Um, uh, it makes me crazy to make sure I'm always applying a cost benefit analysis so often. Uh, we just apply a benefit analysis. It's something we do all the time in politics. This would be great if we could have this. Well, sure, it would be great, but what does it cost? Um, one of the things you, you highlight in the book I thought was really interesting um, was talking about uh, a study about heat waves and how it's going to, you know, it's going to kill all these people because of heat. And there we only hear the cost, this terrible, terrible thing. But there's something on the other side that completely outweighs it. Um, and in this study at all, as well, they talk about, again, a, a recurring theme in your book, how they apply this standard of absolutely no human adaptation, which makes absolutely no sense. Can you walk us through this one? Yes. So there's two big problems with this argument. One is that everyone will tell you, look, if we get more climate change, you're going to see more heat waves and hence more people dying from heat. That's true. But you're also going to get much fewer cold waves and hence more people not dying from cold. And what you have to remember is almost everywhere on the planet, even in India, many more people die from cold than heat. Actually, globally, we estimate that for every one person dying from heat, 17 people die from cold. Mm. And this is not my study. This is the Lancet, the world's leading medical journal, estimating that. 
So what we know is if you see temperatures rise and only look at the ad additional heat deaths, you're missing out on quite a bit. And it's actually very likely that within reasonable temperature increases, you're probably going to see them weighed out by fewer cold deaths. So yes, you'll have more heat deaths, but you'll have fewer cold deaths. But then the, the study that you were talking about, and, and this was also on the headlines in many papers around the US uh, last year, basically said, what will happen when temperatures keep rising, what will happen with heat deaths? And they said, many, many thousands of people are going to die in these extraordinary heat waves, assuming nobody buys an air conditioner. So they literally assumed that, you know, for instance, in Texas, almost everyone has uh, an air conditioner already. And so you will not see more deaths. Where they saw the deaths was up north. So for instance, Seattle, where only 38% of everyone has an air conditioner. So what they basically said was, if nobody in Seattle gets the bright idea to buy an air conditioner in the next 80 years, they're going to be in trouble. But of course, if they actually buy an air conditioner, and if they also become much richer, which the UN and everybody else believes they will be, and they will have much better technology, they will die a lot less. Now, global warming is still a problem because they would have died even less without global warming. But to make even less into a big, big problem is just simply misrepresenting the conversation. Uh, yeah, I mean, you are so good at just being able to find, looking at the whole picture, it's just something the media refuses to do. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's clickability, there's agenda. There's a lot of things I think that go into it. I, I you know, as a guy who does politics all the time in the United States, I am not a fan of the political reporting here, but the health and science reporting is actually worse, which is really saying something. Um, one of the things you talk about here, uh, uh, in the book, and the book is uh, is uh, called False Alarms, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Can't recommend it highly enough. Um, you talk about hurricanes, and uh, in, the, in the hurricane section, you talk about the expanding bullseye effect. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, you know, when you look around and people tell you, see, this was the most expensive hurricane ever. Oh, and here's an even more expensive hurricane ever. It's very often used as a way to say, See, global warming are making hurricanes much worse, and they're going to cost the U.S. much, much more. First of all, we're actually not seeing increasing number of hurricanes, not even of strong hurricanes. If you look at the landfalling hurricanes, which are the best recorded since 1900, they have actually slightly declined since 1900. And that's also true for the strongs so of the category th three and above. So we're not actually seeing increasing number even of hurricanes or strong hurricanes. but we are seeing dramatically increasing damages from hurricanes. But that has almost nothing or nothing to do with global warming. It has everything to do with many more people living much closer to harm's way with much more stuff. So remember, back in, you know, back in 1900, almost nobody lived in Florida. The Florida coastal communities have actually increased 67-fold in population over the last 120 years. 67-fold. Whereas the U.S. has only quadrupled in population. So everyone has moved to coastal Florida. Mm -hmm. They also have much more costly homes. So, of course, when a hurricane hits now, it'll create a lot more damage than when it hit back in 1926, when actually the biggest hurricane tore right through downtown Miami. But there was almost nothing to tear through. That's why you haven't heard about it. It doesn't even have a name. It's just the 1926 Miami hurricane. But if that hurricane hit today, it would be by far 
the costliest hurricane ever to hit the U.S., not because of global warming, but because many more people with much more stuff much closer to harm's way. And so again, this tells you, if you actually want to help people not being damaged by hurricanes and other things, well, get better building regulations and stop subsidizing insurance for people to just build irresponsibly, you know, places that'll keep being hit by hurricanes and also make better regulations. So some places people probably shouldn't be living. Uh, it's amazing because they just do not discuss that. I mean, I remember Al Gore's movie back in the day had a hurricane on the poster of the movie. It was their, one of their central arguments back then. Now it's, uh, you know, with a long period here in the United States, at least with not being hit with many, many hurricanes, uh, it seems to have gone away. I want to hit one more on that uh, one more on that note before we take a break. I think the first place I ever read uh, the actual science about polar bears was in your book, Cool It, that came out uh, many, I don't don't remember what year it came out, but it was several years ago. Um, And I remember being stunned by it because it it was so against everything that was being said at that time. I mean, polar bears were the symbol of global warming destruction. As you point out Hmm. in the book, that really has changed quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, we don't talk very much about polar bears anymore, and that's because they're actually doing good. So what we see, uh, so the biggest organization that actually looks at this, they try to estimate how many polar bears are. Remember, it's a it's a, an enormous area up in the and uh, uh, the uh, around the North Pole. So we don't actually know the numbers. We know them approximately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back in the 1960s, we used to hunt a lot of uh, polar bears. So we probably had about 13,000 polar bears thereabouts. Today, they estimate we've never had more polar bears since uh, the recording started back in the 1960s. It's kept going up and up, and now it's about 26,500. This is, of course, why you don't hear about polar bears anymore. And the real issue here is also to recognize, if you actually care about polar bears, why is it we talk about cutting carbon dioxide, which will mean we will slightly lower the increase in temperature by the end of the century. So what we're basically saying is, all right, let's try and help the polar bears by slightly making it slightly less bad in 100 years. Instead of focusing on the things that we do right now, we still kill every year about 900 polar bears. I don't know about you, but if you want to save polar bears, why don't we stop shooting quite as many? Of course, you still have to shoot some because they're actually dangerous to people, but we might not need to shoot 900. Hmm, that's amazing stuff. Uh, the book is uh, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. We have more with Bjorn Lomborg in just a second. Back with Bjorn Lomborg, the author of False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Uh, Let me touch on one more thing related to coronavirus here for a second. You had a piece in The Wall Street Journal that talked about, uh, in a way, something that I think is almost impossible, right? Like these dramatic decreases in our CO2 emissions that would be very tough in normal times. We've sort of achieved that in a way that no one wanted to. Is there any effect or benefit from what's actually happened here when it comes to the climate? Hmm. So a lot of environmentalists will tell you, you know, you should use your car a little less. You should eat a little less. You should, uh, you know, use a little less fossil fuel. You should certainly fly a little less. And as you point out, that's exactly what we've now done for the whole world. It's like the whole world listened to all the environmentalists and shut down the world. And we have seen a dramatic drop in CO2 emissions 
But we've, of course, also seen a dramatic drop in people's life. This is a terrible time. And what it tells you is, I don't want more of this. But even if you just look at the actual impact, it turns out that we've probably seen the largest single drop in CO2 emissions. And climate scientists estimate that that total drop, if the US and everybody else also get a second wave uh, in, the, in the second half of 2020, if that happens, we will have reduced temp uh, CO2 so much that by the end of the century, it'll reduce temperatures by one five hundredth of a degree Fahrenheit. So the truth is, you won't be able to measure the impact in 100 years from what we have suffered through. And of course, remember, if people start talking to you about we should go carbon neutral, you know, for instance, Joe Biden, but many, many others and also across the world are promising to go carbon neutral by 2050. The U.S. will have reduced its emissions if you have the second wave about 10 percent. So you would need to have 10 lockdowns like you've had this year every year in order to achieve this. Now, obviously, we do it smarter, so it wouldn't be that bad, but it gives you a sense of proportion of how bad and how hard this is. Yeah, scale, I feel like, is one of the things that is just not it, there's no way for the media to be able to summarize it if, if they wanted to. They just because there's this idea. And I think it's very somewhat American in some ways of I can make a difference. I can be the person who's going to step up. I'm going to do something. And there's virtue, I think, in that. There's a lot of people who want to do good and they're going to say, I'm going to stop flying as much and I'm going to I'm going to change my life. You point out in the book, and I think to a point it's irrefutable, your point here is you basically can't make a difference on this problem. It's depressing to think that way, but why is it true? Yes, so in, in my book, I actually call the chapter, You Can't Fix Global Warming. It feels really bad, it'd be wonderful if we could, but what individuals can do adds up to very little. So the climate advisor to the UK government actually put it very nicely, he said, if everyone does a little, we'll end up doing a little. <laughs> so the reality is there's lots of different things you can do, but they all have fairly little impact. So one of the things you could do is go vegetarian. Uh, I'm actually a vegetarian, so I think it's wonderful that people are talking about this, but please don't believe that this is dramatically gonna cut your emissions. People talk they'll cut 50% of your emissions. No, of your food emissions, it'll cut about 4% of your total emissions. And because vegetarian is also cheaper food, you will now have other money to spend on, say, go to Cancun or something. So in total, it'll reduce your emissions just by 2%. That's still something, and by all means, do it. But don't believe this is what's going to fix global warming. And this is true across a wide range of areas. So we need to get serious about this is not about what you do specifically. This is about how we structure our society. Yeah, you talk about in the book, is it's the process of moral licensing. You're essentially giving yourself a little bit of a, a, a break and, and you're able to do these little extra things because you're so very virtuous. Um, you talk about that in conjunction with the rebounding effect. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to explain because you talk about actually canceling an overseas flight might actually be bad for the climate. Yes. So there's there's uh, researchers who've looked at what happens when you stop doing stuff, because then you start doing other stuff, mm -hmm. as you point out, both because you have more money. So, for instance, if you cancel a business class ticket, of course, that will mean that you don't emit all the uh, the uh, the CO2 when you fly. But it also means because business class tickets are so expensive, you have lots of other money to spend on lots of other things that will individually emit CO2 that you will likely emit 
much more than if you'd just gone on your business class trip. That's very counterintuitive, but it's the basic point of saying there's a rebound. When you stop doing something, you have money left over to do other stuff. Typically, that cuts a bit away about 60% of the good you want to do. But the other thing, as you talked about, is more licensing. It's the idea that once you've done something nice, you can do something naughty. <laughs> we, we all know that when, when, when you're, when you're, if you're dieting, you know, if you're really successfully dieting, you're much more likely to take a chocolate snack because I've been good. So now I can take mm -hmm. some chocolate and, and we do the same thing, uh, uh, with environmental issues. If we, you know, buy some more environmentally good stuff, it's more okay to take that trip to Cancun and so on. So you know, I was on, on BBC, uh, once, uh, they'd had, uh, this journalist who'd been ethical man, as they called it, for a year. He'd looked into all the ways that he could, you know, make his uh, uh, family cut their carbon emissions. They'd sold their car, they'd re-insulated their house, they'd done lots of stuff. It's been really hard. And throughout that year, it turned out they'd now cut their carbon emissions by 20%. And everybody was very, very impressed. Mm. And then the press asked him, so what are you going to do now that you're done being ethical, man? Well, it's been really hard. So I bought flight tickets to everyone in the family to South America, which blew <laughs> the entire savings five times over. <laughs> uh, it's just, I mean, the story just repeats itself over and over again. So, I mean, like, what do you do with this information? Because I think you would say, you know, it looks to me to be something it's not manageable for a person to try to do this, even if they have the best intent possible. So if you do, if you're somebody who does really care about this problem and are really scared about it, what do you, what do you do? You get your politicians to do the smart stuff. So most of the book is really about how do we think smartly about climate change? And I think there's one thing that we need to get in front of. It's the scare sense of end of the world. Mm. We need to get rid of that because that's not warranted. Remember all those kids that were out striking? Most kids in America are now afraid that they will have no future because of global warming. Uh, a global survey of 28 countries showed that almost half of all adults believe that global warming will likely lead to the extinction of the human race. That's just simply nonsense. That's mm. not what the UN climate panel is telling us. That's not what the issue is. The UN climate panel tells us that by the 2070s, global warming will be a problem. It will be equivalent of you and everyone else losing somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of their income. Remember, by then, the UN also estimates will be a lot richer, will be 2.63 times richer in 2075. So instead of being 2.63 times richer, because of global warming, it'll only feel like we're 2.56 times richer. Now, that is a problem. I'd rather be 2.63 sure. times richer, but it's not the end of the world. And that's the important thing. So first of all, stop being scared silly. Then we can start talking about what are the smart things you should do. Most politicians are telling you we should buy lots of solar and wind and all that stuff. The problem is that right now that's still not cost effective. And so we end up so right now, the world spends about $140 billion in subsidizing inefficient solar and wind. And we only get a little more than 1% of our energy from solar and wind. But even if we bought a lot more, we just simply wouldn't be able to afford to do all of this, which of course is why most climate policies fail. Mm -hmm. Instead, we should invest dramatically more in research and development. Look, this is the American way to solve problems. Instead of asking people, I'm sorry, could you do with less? Could you turn down your light? Could you, you know, have a less nice life? That's never going to work. 
you find technology to solve the problem. And, and if I can just give you one example, you know, if you think back to the 1950s in Los Angeles, it was an incredibly polluted place. The environmentalist approach to that problem would have been to say, I'm sorry, everybody's got to stop driving. You've you just mm -hmm. got to leave that car and walk around. Of course, that would never have actually worked. What did work was the catalytic converter. Somebody invented that in 1974. Uh, 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 and we now have many more ca cars on the road. There's still lots of other problems and congestion and all that. But fundamentally, there's very little pollution because of technical solution. We need to do the same thing for climate. If we could innovate the price of green energy down below fossil fuels, everyone would switch, not just rich, well-meaning Americans, but the Chinese, the Indians, the Africans, everybody else. So we would actually be able to both make a better world and solve global warming. And remember, better world means that you have access to much more energy, much cheaper, so that you can pull people out of poverty because most people don't have it as well as Americans have right now. Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, you, you make this point too about about these technologies and that investing money in today's solar technology is kind of a negative long term because even for the problem you're trying to solve, you, you talked about uh, in India, Darnai, uh, this this area where they tried to make this miraculous solar, sort of solar city. Uh, can you talk about that in Germany? You kind of talked about in the same context. Can you talk about that and, and how that actually can hurt the you know hurt the solution you're trying? to come up with. Yeah, and certainly hurts the poor. So in Dainai, Greenpeace went to this uh, fairly isolated uh, city in northeast uh, uh, India, uh, and they made a big splash about it. It was in CNN and everywhere. The first solar city in India. Everybody was very happy. They put up solar panels. They put up lots and lots of lead batteries. And what happened was when they turned it on, everybody was very excited. And of course, it ran out of juice in a couple of hours. There was no electricity in the morning. And they couldn't run many of the things they wanted. They couldn't run a refrigerator or a stove or a an iron. Now, they did get more light, which is a good thing. And they could charge their cell phone, which is a good thing. But it was very little and so Greenpeace had perhaps a little ambitiously, they had invited the uh, the state minister to come and you know uh, get the applause <laughs> for actually having made this uh, first solar city. And he was very surprised and shocked when all of the villagers met him and said, we don't want fake electricity, i.e. the, the Greenpeace uh, uh, energy. We want real electricity from the grid like everybody else, which is going to be much cheaper and much more dependable. And so him being a politician, he got them a connection to the grid, which meant the their price of electricity dropped by two thirds. And of course, now some of them still use the uh, the solar panels because they're there and somebody's already paid for them. But it is not how you want to do this. And it's exactly the same way in Germany. They have pulled in lots and lots of solar and wind. They feel very proud of it, but they've actually reduced their carbon emissions Almost nothing, certainly not since 2010. Why? Because they also got rid of nuclear power. So if you're worried about both nuclear power and global warming, you end up not solving either. So the reality here is you have to be much more smart about this. This is not about chucking down lots and lots of money and solving almost nothing, which is what we're doing currently. You know, the uh, Paris Agreement, which we talked about earlier, will at the best case scenario cut temperatures by the end of the century, an unmeasurable 0.3 degrees mm. uh, Fahrenheit. But it'll cost us somewhere between 50 and $100 trillion. So for every dollar we spend, we'll avoid about 10 cents or 11 cents of climate damage. That's a bad deal.
What we need to do is invest a lot more in research and development. That's a really good strategy, partly because it'll give all kinds of other spin-offs, but also because it's the only sustainable way that we'll actually be able to fix climate by making the technological solution, or you could call it the American solution. Mm. Uh, I have one more for you before we're out of time. And this has been great. I really appreciate you uh, doing this. I mean, I can tell you, we're not going to have time to get into the Paris Agreement breakdown, but that in and of itself is worth the price of the book. Um, let me uh, let me ask you this. The average person can't go dig through every scientific report that they see in the media. They're not going to they might not understand it. They might not be able. I mean, they don't have the time to do it. What are things to look for? I know when I see a headline that expresses climate savings as cars taken off the road, I know it's not doing anything because that gives you a nice big number. And it seems like it's doing a lot, but it's a tiny, tiny fraction and will do absolutely no good in the long run. What are the things that people can look for to to show honest skepticism if they really want to know what the truth is? Yeah, well, I mean, two obvious things is. Has it taken into account adaptation, as we talked about? If there's 187 million people who are going to get flooded, did you think of them actually making smart decisions in the next 80 years? If they haven't taken that into account, it's just a silly study. Mm. Also, the uh, uh, increasing, uh, uh, expanding bullseye target, so the fact that many more people live much closer to harm's way with much more stuff, have they taken that into account? And when you talk about the cars, I think that's a great example. You know, Look for the actual impact. So People actually worried about the temperature rise by 2100. Ask them, how much will this reduce the temperature rise if we actually do all of the stuff that you ask for? And the answer typically is incredibly, incredibly little. Just to give you an example, if we actually succeed in getting almost everyone onto electric cars by 2030, it'll still just solve 0.1% of the problem. So we're literally talking about almost nothing. Most people have no sense because that question never get asked. And of course, we should also ask, how much will this cost? And unfortunately, the answer is often trillions. And if it's trillions for scraps, maybe not the best way to fix any problem. (laughs) Very good point. Uh, Bjorn Lomborg, uh, the book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, thanks so much for taking the time. I'd love to have you on again and and talk about more of this because there's so much in the book. We could do show after show after it. Thank you. Let's do that. Thanks. All right. Back in a second. Look, I could give you some more depressing news. I could, could bum you out a little bit, but I just don't feel like it today. So here's this from Ryan Long. When me and Brad first met, I didn't think we'd get along, but turns out we kind of agree on everything. Your, Your racial, racial identity is the most important thing. thing. Everything, everything should be looked at through the lens of race. race. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Damn. We both have a lot of opinions about people of color, even though we barely know any. I say colored people, but as long as we're classifying them, we both think minorities are a united group who think the same and act the same. And vote the same. You don't want to lose your black card. Sorry, I don't know. I just think we should roll, roll back, back discrimination laws so we can hire based on race again. Jinx, now you owe me a Coke. <laughs> hey, tell them what you told me yesterday. White actors should only do voices for white cartoon characters. I've been saying that for years. Stick to your own. Us white people, we have so much privilege. I agree. It is a privilege to be white. Ask him about interracial dating. All I said is that black men who date white women have internalized racism, and white men that date ethnic women are fetishizing them. Guys against interracial dating now. Like, am I being pranked? Did Boomer put you up to this? (laughs) Ugh, you know that taco place is white-owned? White people should be making white foods, like Kraft macaroni and cheese, no seasoning, not even salt. Mm. It's like he's a mind reader. I mean, I've been pushing for segregation forever, and my man does what? I created an improv comedy show exclusively for ethnic people. Guy segregates comedy on my birthday. (laughs) 
<laughs> it, it's just too perfect. I wish it wasn't. Uh, we'll put the whole thing up on the Facebook page. Uh, Ryan Long, he's doing some really solid work. Back in a second. Do you want to sell your home? Do you want to buy a home? Then you need realestateagentsitrust.com. That's it. That's all you need to know. Why? Because you need a real estate agent that actually knows what the heck they're doing. Uh, this is a company that Glenn started uh, to find the best real estate agents around the country. Some tons of research. They've screened everybody on this list. Uh, these are people that you can trust with your real estate transactions. And I will say, uh, you know, it's your biggest financial transaction you probably will ever do. Uh, that's a big deal. You can't just give it to anybody. Some person you saw their name on a bench or you saw a little, uh, you know, flyer in a coffee shop. Uh, you need realestateagentsitrust.com. Uh, let them uh, help you sort through all the real estate agents in your uh, area to find the very best. And they will see, uh, you know, your selling process from the beginning to the end. If you're looking to purchase a home or to sell a home, whatever you want to do, go to realestateagentsitrust.com. Learn more at realestateagentsitrust.com now. Go there, check it out and make your real estate transaction actually work. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Sad news today, Herman Cain, a former GOP presidential candidate, the founder of uh, Godfather's Pizza, he ran that for a while at least. Um, he also uh, you know, had the 999 plan. He, he was kind of a leader of that race uh, for a while. Uh, he passed away uh, from coronavirus. Um, really just a sad story. I mean, he was still active. He had done a radio show for a long time. And there's some really annoying stuff online. I mean, some people kind of on the conspiracy theory side are saying, it's not coronavirus. He died of cancer. He had cancer. He recovered from cancer in 2011. So that would have been a really weird arc of the disease. Um, but he went into, uh, into uh, the hospital uh, at the beginning of July, he's been in there all month. Uh, they were hoping just a few days ago that he might make a recovery. It didn't happen. The left seemingly loves it because I guess he was a Republican. He went to a Trump rally without a mask on. They're trying to claim that he caught it at the Tulsa rally. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. It's just people dunking on their political enemies because they're awful, awful human beings. Unlike Herman Cain, who was not an awful human being, a good dude, and we'll miss him. We'll see you tomorrow.